Hello, friends, and welcome back again to another episode of Mike's Podcast. I am really glad to have you with us again as we jump into part two of my interview with Dr. David Gushy. If you didn't get to hear part one, I'd encourage you to go back, download on whatever podcast app you're listening to, download part one. And where we left off, if you don't remember from a few days ago, is Dr. Gushy had just been talking a bit about a uh, political vision and about what a post-evangelical political vision might look like. And we're going we're gonna to delve into some other topics from here on out then. We're going to shift into talking about his engagement in the church and what it means to be a part of a community like that as we move forward post-evangelicalism. We're going to talk about sexual ethics. We're going to talk about uh, um, uh, racial injustice in the church and particularly about a statement that he utilizes in his book that, that I think um, we all need to hear and sort of wrestle with a bit. So I'm excited for us to get into part two of my interview with Dr. David Gushy. I want to remind you again, we were having some audio recording issues. So while the audio clarity isn't at the caliber that we normally try to have it be at, I think that the content is so rich that it's it's worth engaging in. So this is from Dr. David Gushy's book, After Evangelicalism, which I would encourage you to check out. It releases August 25th, but here is part two of my interview with Dr. David Gushy. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about your involvement in church, um, because one of the things that we're seeing are so many people who are being disenfranchised by evangelicalism for so many of the reasons that you mentioned and just abandoning church altogether. Maybe not abandoning faith, but abandoning involvement in a in a structured local body in the way that you are, and you're you're involved at your church, a Baptist church, and and you're also, if I understood right, attending daily Catholic mass as well, weekly, mm-hmm. weekly Catholic mass. Okay, why why are you still involved in church after like some of how you've been treated by the church? What's interesting is that neither of those two expressions of church are in meaningful contact with the evangelical world. Uh, (laughs) The Baptist church that I go to that has been my home for 13 years uh, is that very same community that I told you about where I met LGBT Christians and where we went on that journey together. Yes. I, I, I teach a Bible study. Um, about, About 50 people. I haven't counted recently, but I'd say, a third or more are LGBTQ. Um, we, it's a beloved community. It's lovely. Like it really is. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a, a, a church affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Um, so not an evangelical denomination. Okay. So I don't know. That's home base for me. And that's where I have a chance to serve. And uh, where over long Week by week, month by month, year by year, we have built something that is clearly post-evangelical, you know, um, post-Southern Baptist and, and post-evangelical. My wife is Catholic, deeply devoted Catholic. Um, and I grew up Catholic, as I talk about in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was estranged from the Catholic Church from when I was about 14 until pretty much until my wife uh, decided as a matter of her own conscience that that's where she fit. And so a few, well, it must have been about seven years ago, I decided, we decided that it'd be best for us if I went back with her. For the longest time, I went like this. 
I was the Baptist pastor and she dutifully went with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then at a certain point, she said, I don't want to dutifully go with you anymore. Why don't you come with me? It was like it was time for some balance. So now I do the Baptist church by myself and I go to Catholic church with her. And um, this book reflects some of the impact of seven years of uh, a pretty steady involvement on the Catholic side for me. Um, there's a lot of talk about liturgy. Yes. Uh, about the way scripture is treated as holy and yet no language of inerrancy is ever used. Hmm. You know, um, the beauty of the aesthetic side on the Catholic side. Um, some aspects of the moral tradition that I really like. Um, I, I never have sought to be visible over on the Catholic Church. I'm a leader in this world, but in the Catholic world, I'm just a guy who does church with his life. You know, that's helpful for me. Um, but I have been listening and learning. I have plenty of Catholic colleagues too in the guild and I've talked with them. Um, so one of the arguments I make in the book is that people really do need flesh and blood community. Um, and that, that seeking the kingdom Bible study class uh, in Decatur, these are the people who will bury me when I die. Mm. Um, and and we share a similar vision of faith. The Catholic Church, that's where my wife and I experience kind of marital community in worship. And I value many things about it deeply. Um, but that card-carrying evangelical world, the world of praise and worship and Lord, I lift your name on high and um, and all the accoutrements of uh, subculture that I was deeply involved in, that really feels... I mean, I'm still invited into that space every now and then, but it's it it's not where I am at home anymore. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I, I think that you're right. And you tell this story that I found really endearing about your Sunday school class where you were trying to um, leave it, that you're trying to say like, hey, I'm called to do some other things right now and I need to free up my Sundays. And <laughs> And you were prepared, like you were preparing the class to tell them, like, I'm going to leave. And that somebody says to you, essentially, like, you can go do that other stuff. And we want to bless you in doing that other stuff. But you're not leaving us. Yeah. Essentially, like, you're a part of this community. And you don't get to treat yourself like you're this individual who exists apart from the sort of communal covenant that we have together. What did you think of that story? I was really um, challenged by it, honestly, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that it got me thinking about is uh, some of my experience has been in, one of the fallacies of both the conservative and progressive movements has been the over the overemphasis on the individual. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beautiful about a church covenanting together, a community who's covenanted together, like we're going to go through this together. And that even creates space for... Um, room for questions and doubts and and a changing faith journey because it's like well these things won't excommunicate you and neither will you having some other things you need to do on sunday because <laughs> like we're in this together that that was really um it was really honestly challenging for me in this season um i was i was taught so much in that moment i wish Everybody who reads that story or hears this podcast could have been in that room. Because hmm. um, I was trying to wriggle out of that community because I wanted more freedom. Hmm. 
I didn't want to have an obligation every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Um, I wanted to be on the road. I was hungry for that. Of course, that was just before and nobody's on the road, right? It was before COVID, right? Sure. Um, and this dear brother basically said, with this, you know, there's one of these, these kind of anointed moments sometimes in your life. You know? hmm. He just basically said, if you try to leave, we will hunt you down. I know where you live. <laughs> um, and it was lovely. And it was like, that settled something for me. Huh. Um, Did you know it in that moment? Or was it like later that you're reflecting on it? And you're like, oh, something really significant happened. I knew it right at the time. You did. Uh, he was He was naming an invisible bond that existed between me as the teacher and founder of that class and the 50 people in that community, that we are a community. You know, we have far less ebb and flow in that community than in most churches. Um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, once people really plug into that group, they rarely leave unless they move. Um, individualism is an American thing in a sense. It affects, it affects afflicts both the left and the right so you have both conservative and liberal churches where people are constantly coming and going right yeah i want a different worship service i don't agree with you about the color of the carpet i want this i want that um i i'm just ready to move on i'm bored i want to go to the i want to go boating on the weekend i want to do what i want to do and and um that moment it was like it was like we don't recognize that you have 100 freedom to do what you want to do <laughs> And, and, but what it said to me was, and you know what, Gashi, just moving on would not be best for you either. You actually need this community just as much as they need you. And, um, and people need to be connected in ways that are not as breakable as almost everything that we, that we do these days. You know? It was beautiful. It I'm really is. You know, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a really beautiful vision. I really... I really genuinely was challenged by that story. Um, yeah, so in the church today, one of the things that's been written about quite a bit in evangelical circles is the purity culture, purity culture that I grew up in, true love weights, all that, the damage that has been done to people as a result of that. That's all tied in with LGBTQ exclusion in the church, obviously, but then also just like um, larger experiences of people having broken sexuality, of um, of patriarchy, of experiences like that that are all sort of like wrapped up in there. And I was having this realization not long ago. I was telling my wife, we've got two teenagers. And I said, you know, when I was a youth pastor, all the parents were concerned about the kind of sex education that their kids were going to get in school and what it was going to do to them. And their talks with me were all about like, how am I going to counter the kind of sex education that they're going to get in school? And I told her, I said, I'm having the opposite response where I'm concerned about the kind of sex education that our kids are going to get in church and what the implications are going to be for them in that. Um, and so you lay out, you, you as somebody who's writing about post-evangelicalism, you are shockingly conservative on several things, which mm -hmm. I felt like was also true in both in your engagement here on on purity culture and sex where you both recognize the damage of purity culture but also in like what you are calling for for a solution to that would you do you mind talking about that a little bit shockingly conservative that's fun um <laughs> uh, purity culture 
is increasingly, it's increasingly clear how damaging purity culture was. And still is, I guess, in some contexts, right? Yeah. Um, I do think we're past the heyday of pre love weights, but, but, but the idea that, especially that young women are responsible for um, um, young men uh, staying out of trouble, uh, young women must be shamed uh, about their bodies and how they might be possibly flirting or dressing or whatever, or that if there is any kind of sexual contact, they are dirty, tainted, polluted. Um, the evidence, again, of harm from this is very clear. And I, I quoted a couple of books that are really devastating about that. Um, and I would, I would urge, especially, well, I would urge male and female listeners to, to read a book like Pure by Linda K. Klein. Yeah. My wife read that and was really impacted by it. Yeah. Um, so I kind of step back and say, I think it is legitimate. Maybe this is what's shockingly conservative. It is legitimate that every human community has to kind of find a way to train and regulate sexuality Mm -hmm. because sexuality is both uh, a potentially constructive and destructive force. And it's also how the species is transmitted one generation to the next. And so it's in the interest of every society to come up with some kind of system that can enable the handoff from one generation to the next and for for procreation and child rearing to happen successfully. Um, and I propose in the book that that system is kind of broken in America right now. Um, and it has a lot to do with economic and cultural factors like the delay of marriage to the age of 30. Right. With puberty at 11, that's almost 20 years. That's impossible to navigate very well for most people. So, um, so we need realism about that reality. But what the conservative churches tried to do was to shame women, especially, into protecting their virginity uh, for 20 years from puberty until marriage. Um, and shame doesn't work well as a strategy. It just harms people. So we need other strategies. But I also claim that in the end, covenant, a binding marital covenant between people who make promises on one day that they are bound to keep, kind of like the church vision that I, we just were talking about, right? Yep. Um, is the best way to secure the space for healthy expression of sexuality and healthy rearing of children. So I still support a marital culture. The only thing that makes me liberal on any dimension of sexual ethics is I believe that gay people should be invited into that culture. Hmm. That they ought to be able to make binding covenants too. And that those should be recognized by the church. Yeah. And then when you talk about um, a positive sexual ethic, you talk about the need to teach for like egalitarianism Mm -hmm. within uh, consent. Um, And that the church has really like missed talking about those things. And and in some ways, or at least the evangelical church, in some ways with egalitarianism, I can remember teachings hearing about like, um, well, my wife was told this early on in our marriage, you need to be a yes woman that first Corinthians seven says to not deny sex. And so it's all about like your role is to just is to meet your husband's needs. Mm-hmm. And then um, we don't ever talk. I can't remember ever hearing a conversation about consent 
ever in in my experience in the church. Um, yeah. Um, what's new for me in this chapter, I've written about sexual ethics before, and not just LGBT, but others, right? Mm-hmm. But what's new is a stronger emphasis on, on um, egalitarian mutuality, mutual pleasure, mutual consent, um, mutual commitment to, to meet the needs of each other, and also mutual commitment to avoid any kind of coercion. I talk about we never really developed any kind of moral guidance outside of safe sex for marriage. Yes. Um, and so the whole zone of the experimentation, um, the in-between stuff that people do in the dating years, the, um, the maybe non-covenantal but experimental sex that people often end up having experiences of at one time or another, we had no guidelines for that. So that became a kind of a wild west. And then if you, if, uh, if you add um, a kind of a female submission, male leadership paradigm, I think, and I learned this really more by reading these women authors, I think that that kind of planted the seeds for sexual aggression and even sexual assault um, on the part of men in that in-between zone, maybe even in marriage, but certainly in that in-between zone, if you don't have guidance for an area, then it's a kind of a, a, um, a danger zone because there are no rules. If there are no rules, you're making up as you go along. And, and sex is an area where you might not want to make things up as you go along. There's too much at stake, right? Um, but if you have an overall ethos of women are responsible to keep those wolfish men at bay. Now the wolfish man has a shot at a woman. He's aggressive. She's supposed to submit, but she's not supposed to submit. What are the rules here? Nobody knows if a kiss is dirtying. Well, then what is, you know, what is uh, the in-between stuff between that and intercourse? Um, We just didn't have any guidelines for that. And I think we created an area of a great deal of ambiguity. And the bottom line is a lot of women got hurt, especially. Yeah. Well, I appreciated um, the, the offer of a vision that was based around mutuality, I think gave a good positive sexual ethic to, to move towards it rather than just uh, like, don't do it until you're married. And then when you do get married and you talk about this in the book, and I've had several friends that this has been true of that you have all this shame. And yeah. so you bring all of this shame around sex into your marriage and it's really, really damaging in the marital bed for a long time that some people never, never recover out of that. Uh, the documentation on that is very clear that the main thing that shame-based teachings produce is damaged sexuality. Hmm. I've had, I've had numerous pastoral conversations with people who basically went this, it went wrong on the wedding night and it never has gotten better. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. So um, I think maybe people can look at that chapter and see maybe a roadmap for a non-shame-based still covenantal and realistic way of talking to young people about sex. I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Matter of fact, non-shame based. Um, So I want to just kind of wrap up by where you end up taking the book at the end is talking about um, really a vision for racial justice in the post-evangelical church. And you quote, and um, I hope I'm saying their name right. Ebony Marshall Terman. Yeah, Ebony. Mm-hmm. Ebony. Ebony Marshall Terman, who says that 
white Christianity in America was born in heresy, which just is this bombshell statement. Do you, would you unpack that a bit? I thought that that might strike some evangelical or post-evangelical readers, white readers, as a bombshell statement. That's good. Um, when I heard it, well, you know, I heard it at the American Academy of Religion meeting last year. I think it was. Yeah, last year. And when I heard it, I thought, you know, I'm far enough along right now on this journey that that doesn't shock me. Mm-hmm. I know what she means. But I bet most white Christians I've ever gone to church with would not know what that means or would just be offended, get defensive about it. So what it means is that we need to understand white American Christianity as corrupted from the beginning, especially but not only in the South, by having to justify slavery and racism as somehow compatible with following Jesus. Hmm. And slavery and racism are fundamentally incompatible with following Jesus. But for 250 plus years in the South, that was the way of life. And in much of the rest of the country, um, while there wasn't slavery, there was embeddedness in the economic system of uh, slavery and racism as a casual pattern of thinking and living. Um, And so my, what I do basically is to talk about the history of kind of what happened to Christianity when white Europeans decided to send colonizers around the world to, to, uh, to conquer and supposedly Christianize the indigenous populations of Latin America, Africa, North America, um, and, and to build European outposts in these places. And what happened was a faith that should have been uh, valuing every life the same, uh, remembering that murder and enslavement are prescribed you know, by God's will, um, and so on and so on, had to accommodate the realities of conquest, enslavement, and everything that went with it. And so we shaved off any aspect of the message of Jesus or the message of the Bible that would make it uncomfortable for us to sleep in it. In other words, we embraced heresy and rejected large parts of what Jesus was about and what the prophet said and what the Bible is about. Hmm. And um, this made it possible for us to live with ourselves. And I think about, for example, again, a Southern Baptist, if you read the, if you like, just open up the Baptist hymnal from like 1968 or whatever, and you just kind of look at content analysis of what's in those hymns, the hymns that were sung by slave-owning Christians, a lot of them, they just managed to never address those realities. The, the faith was made private, sentimental, otherworldly, um, uh, not justice-oriented, not liberationist in any way. Um, uh, and the, the faith became something that you could, you could do and also be a slave owner and not notice that there was any kind of problem with it. Right. Right. Um, and so, so there's a lot of uh, good research being done by scholars these days on how exactly European Christianity became 
of basically whiteness enthroned, mm-hmm. how Jesus became white, how God became white, how evil became black and God became white, um, how, how we learned to think of ourselves as the superior race um, and that it was okay to enslave or mistreat other people. And then we built an entire society based on that. And, and meanwhile, all along, um, black Christians, especially were articulating, were, were developing a different version of Christianity that was resisting all of that. And we didn't pay close attention to it, but it burst, it burst into the consciousness of American white Christians when, when protest movements erupted. And it turned out that a whole different version of Christianity had been kind of, mm. had been being born all along. Yeah. And, and that was the, the Christianity of the civil rights movement. It was the Christianity of the uh, slave spirituals, you know, and, and a resistance Christianity. And so uh, basically I'm saying white folks need to realize that probably the resistance Christianity was much closer to what Jesus was about and what he was like than the, than the version that we developed so that we could live with our, with our unjust society that we had created. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you talk about is like what we can be doing now is to be listening to more people of color, to be centering people of color in our theological conversations and how we think about the church and in all those sorts of things. And I've been the last several years have had been trying to make a concerted effort to both uh, center more uh, female voices in what I was reading theologically, as well as non-white Western voices. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I think that you hit on this briefly there is that um, people of color are generally less LGBTQ affirming than than uh, white Christians are has been my general experience. And I don't know if that's fully true or not true, but that has been generally true for me. Um, and I'm curious. So one of the things that I've wrestled with a bit is is trying to center those voices and allow uh, those voices to have a significant impact on me. And then there are these other things that have been swirling around and challenging me for a bit. They're at odds with what I'm hearing in those spaces. Does that make, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Um, this is a, a really complicated and lively conversation, for example, within the black Christian community. Um, and one interesting place to see it is if you actually go into like black Christian spaces and see how, how they are having that conversation internally. Mm-hmm. And I went to a conference uh, two years ago called the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, and it was held in uh, Birmingham. And this is a justice-oriented conference, hundreds of black theologians and church people. And you could see the wrestle right there between the traditionalists on sexuality, black traditionalism, and the the more liberative voices also in the black church saying, you know what, the very liberative strand that we have drawn upon to fight for our own racial liberation is it's the same Jesus, the same God, the same text that ought to apply to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So this is cross-cutting kind of realities on race white people have been semi-blind for hundreds of years and black people um, have much to teach us. Hmm. On LGBT inclusion, I find that in many ways, the conversations are the same in the black community and the white community 
both dealing with the kind of biblical literalism and traditionalism that that has to be challenged. But I think the difference is that there's a resource that the black churches can call on, but the white churches can't. And that resource is the whole thrust of set my people free. Hmm. Yeah, uh, liberation. Resist, liberation theology and resistance theology, right? The theology of God's, God is on the side of the oppressed. God wants people uh, to not be mistreated anymore. And so, so that is called upon as a resource in internal African-American Christian conversations. And sadly, you know, that's less likely a resource on the white Christian side because we don't have as much of a liberative strand like that. You know? Sure. Does that make sense? No, you that know? totally makes sense. I, I appreciate that. That's a good, um, it's a good helpful thought in sitting in, in like what it looks like to sit in that tension there around. Yeah. There. Yeah. And, and so I talked some about womanist theology yes. towards the end of the book. Would you uh, even describe, because my guess is a lot of people who are listening to this don't know what womanist theology is as opposed to like feminism or. It's basically uh, black Christian feminism is the, the, the strand of it that I draw on in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and womanist theology born with uh, Alice Walker using the term womanist and then, and then uh, Katie Cannon, the ethicist at, at Union where I went to school and then I went from there. It's basically progressive black Christian feminism. And so they tend to talk about oppressions related to race, related to gender for women, and related to sexuality. And all, sometimes also related to poverty, just kind of being on the bottom of the economic structure of the US. And so, so their voice especially is that if you're with Jesus, you're with helping uh, to reverse centuries of injustice in all of those areas race, gender, sexuality, and poverty. So that makes them critics of aspects of the black churches where there's not movement on those issues. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so, but they're also just part of the black community when it's calling for civil rights and equality on issues of race, but sometimes it's a critic of the black church community on other, on other issues. So what I would say to post-evangelicals, and I do say in the book, Get out of our little evangelical white ghetto and start reading more widely and talking. <laughs> there is so much interesting thought out there. And when you do, you'll see that the Christianity doesn't just have to be this blinkered little conservative white people thing. Right. There's just so much else out there. You don't have to turn away from Jesus. Just engage different strands of the Christian community that evangelicals used to tell you were too liberal to pay any attention. <laughs> Uh, I do think, um, for me personally, one of the things that has saved my faith over the last multiple years has been recognizing the wide berth of Christian thought that existed outside of what my experience and heritage had been that gave me this really small slice of a much larger pie and realizing like, oh, there's so many other slices that I can learn from and engage in and that um, to hold on to faith doesn't look like just this one piece. And it's hard for us because within evangelicalism, part of the message was we have the truth. Right. They don't. We do. So you might say part of the backwash of that is when we leave that community, sometimes we assume that means we've left the faith. Because after Mm -hmm. all, they told us that we have the faith. So it takes a little while of detoxing from that message to be realizing that 
you know, there actually are a lot of other serious Christians out there. We were just never exposed to them. So now maybe we should, we should open our eyes a little bit. That's good. That's good. Um, Dr. Gushy, I'm really, really grateful for your time um, with me here today. And um, so much in the book that we didn't hit on. And so I'd love for people to pick up um, after evangelicalism. You talk about a vision of Jesus. You talk about um, the scriptures, how we engage the scriptures. You talk about a lot of things that we didn't get into here today. Um, but I would love, there's a lot of people who listen to this who are in some sort of like faith transition that they're asking questions of they've grown up in evangelicalism and for whatever reason, it's not working for them anymore. They're trying to figure out how to hold on to some sort of faith. I would love to close up our time together. If you would just offer some words, some encouragement, some thoughts to a group of people who are sitting in that sort of space of, of some kind of deconstruction of their faith. Um, well, first of all, this book is precisely for such people. And, um, the image I use on the cover of the book is of a maze. Hmm. And I say that a, a lot of evangelicals or disillusioned evangelicals got stuck in the maze somewhere. You know, like, let's say the goal is to get through the maze on the other side and still have Jesus. Jesus is on the other side of the maze, right? But you're stuck in the maze because somebody taught you something about sex or about your body or about the Bible or about science or about whatever about politics and you said no no that that can't be right i guess that means i'm not a christian or i guess christians are awful or whatever so i guess my word would be no what you encountered was a version of christianity and that version in some ways is not very healthy and certainly it's not the only version out there so i hope that you will um work your way out of the maze and find Jesus on the other side. And you'll find that he's even better than you knew. And um, the problem was, it was white evangelicalism, as you experienced it, the problem was not Jesus. And um, that you can end up having a living faith that works for you on the other side of that. That's my hope and prayer for everybody who's in that space. And there's millions of people who are in that space. That's really good. Thank you so much, Dr. Gushy. I really appreciate you being on with me today. Thanks for having me. And I'd love, uh, let's just say this is the most thorough conversation about the book that I've had so far. And <laughs> that makes me happy. So I'd love to hear about any feedback that you get and happy to follow up with you. Love it. Well, I will take that compliment and um, look forward to talking to you more about things that come out of this for sure. Great. Thanks. Take care, Thank Mike. Thank you. Thanks, and Dave. Well, there you have it, folks. Dr. David Gushy, world-renowned ethicist, who says that uh, I gave him the most thorough conversation about his book so far. So, you know, take that for what you want, but you're going to see that on my Twitter bio pretty soon. Um, hey, thanks for hanging out with us. I hope that you found that to be a um, thought-provoking conversation. I think that he's got some really uh, thoughtful ideas for us to wrestle through about what does it mean to move beyond evangelicalism. And for those of us who have been disenfranchised by it for, for all kinds of different reasons, or that you've found yourself in a spot where it's like, well, the faith that I had known, the, the Christian vision that I had had, it no longer is working for me. It doesn't make sense for me anymore. Uh, what I'm seeing in the larger sort of Christian landscape that I've been engaged in like is really um, disheartening to me. And you're trying to figure out like, well, what does that look like going forward? What do I do now? How? What do I do with my faith? Does that mean I abandon my faith? Are there churches for me? All that sort of stuff. 
Uh, I hope that Dr. Gushy here is helping to give you a bit of a renewed vision for for what it might look like to operate in a Christian faith that moves beyond what you've known of in evangelicalism. So anyways, I would really, again, encourage you to pick up his book, After Evangelicalism. He's written a bunch of other stuff. That's just his latest one. You can check it out. It releases on August 25th. Thanks for being with me here again on Mike's podcast. Grace and peace to you, friends.